Welcome to the Home Church Podcast. My name's Kenny, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Home Church, and we gather in Maiden, North Carolina. We're so glad you tuned in to today's episode, and we hope that this episode will help encourage you and inspire you as you continue to follow Jesus step by step. Buenos dias, buenos dias, guys. Buenos dias, Home Church. Man, what an honor, what a privilege to be here with you guys. As you sit down, look at the person next to you and say, this Puerto Rican's going to preach. Tell them. This Puerto Rican's going to preach. <laughs> On behalf of me, my, my, my wife, Hannah, my son, Ilian, our oldest, he's two-year-old, and our youngest, Rio. Man, we're so glad to be here with you guys today. They were like, you know, we're just really excited to be able to hang out with you guys. Pastor Kenny um, means so much to me. Your pastor means so much to me. Your pastor is, is so special to us. He has walked with us this whole way. And today, since he is not here, I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you a story that I wouldn't tell you if he was here. <laughs> so if you're watching online, you're finding out for the first time. And if you're not, I asked the team to cut this part, all right? If he's not watching it live, they will cut this part and it will not be in the broadcast, all right? But Pastor Kenny, the first time, when I met Pastor Kenny, Pastor Kenny brought us in, and this is like the third or fourth time that I hang out with home church with you guys. And one of the times that he brought me up, uh, he wanted to, to pray for us. Now, keep it, Pastor Kenny has been with us since the very beginning. So he brings, us, he brings me up to preach, right? He brings me up to preach, and I preach, and then after that, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm preaching like I normally preach. I'm moving all around. Like the team asked me today, hey, do we need to put a wide lens? And I was like, the widest one you got, all right? <laughs> so I'm going to be running up this altar. I do a cardio workout every time I preach. Um, and so Pastor Kenny brought me up here, and Pastor Kenny is, 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 we had just started. We didn't even have a name, right? And so I had just told him the name like a week before, and I had brought my church, and most of our core team was here, and Pastor Kenny's praying for us, and he puts his hand on me, and he says, our, the name of our church is Casa Viva Church, House Alive. And Pastor Kenny's praying for me, and as he's praying for me, he says, Father God, we ask you that you bless. And I think he forgot the name for a second. <laughs> so in the spot, he pivots and goes, I just, Pastor, Pastor, God, I just, I, just, I just pray that you bless Casa La Vie. That's what he said. <laughs> Casa La Vie. That's what he told me. He changed us from a Spanglish church to a French church. <laughs> we went to Casa La Vie. And so now I got two really close friends of mine. They're both named Kenny. They're both Pastor Kenny. One of them leads Hope Church in Hickory, and the other one leads Home Church in Maiden. So whenever I talk about Pastor Kenny, my church doesn't know which one am I talking about. So the way they reference Pastor Kenny from Denver is Pastor Kenny, is that Casa La Vie? Like that's, that's how they know. <laughs> And the reason I say this story, the reason I love this story and I wanted to share it with you guys is because, because Kenny, Pastor Dick, there's not a diss on it. Pastor Kenny was with us before there was a name, before there was a logo, before there was a building, before there was a crowd, when it was only a vision of a young guy with his wife and his only one son. And I shared it with him in Miami Cafe. And in that moment, he said, if you're willing to put in the work, I will coach you and I will mentor you. And he's been with us since before we had a name. They believed in us. He hadn't seen it, but he had faith. He hadn't even seen it, but he had faith. And that is exactly the topic that we have for this week. How the power of faith and how it can unleash hope in your life. We've been walking through the book of, we started last week in this, y'all started last week in this series, walking through the book of Hebrews. Pastor Kenny preached on Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, and today we're going to go to the second part, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. So if you may, let's read it together, because this will be the text for our study today. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The title of today's sermon is Hope for the Skeptic. Tell the person next to you, Hope for the Skeptic. Allow me to pray for you. Father God, I pray that today you help me deliver this word and help me bring it, Father, that we can receive it and we can have it and we can be challenged by it and we can learn from it. I know that today you want to grow us spiritually and mature us spiritually. So don't let me mess it up, God. Cover my inefficiencies. Do the things that I can't do and help me deliver this word. In the name of Jesus, amen. In life, I think we have deal breakers, right? It is a point that makes all the difference. 
Another way to call it is the icing on the cake, the thing that sells us. And once we find a deal breaker, once we find the things that captures us, we are willing to go further. We are willing to pay a steeper price. We are willing to, 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 to go harder, to go longer for that thing because we found the deal breaker. Say with me, deal breaker. Uh, when, I, when the church gets too silent, I get nervous, all right? So I'm going to start asking you to do things all the time, all right? I'm Latino and we loud. So, so de- it's a deal breaker. Let me give you some examples of a deal breaker. My wife found a deal breaker when she met me. When she met me, the first thing she saw is what a sexy man. But that wasn't the deal breaker. Then all of a sudden, she heard I was godly. And it's what a godly, sexy man. So, but that wasn't even the deal breaker. Then she found out that I was from an exotic island, Latino, Puerto Rican, with my tan. So now she gets a godly, sexy, Puerto Rican deal breaker. That's how I was. She said, that's a deal breaker for me. And, she, and now we're married. She said, put a ring on it. <laughs> and now we're married. And we got two kids. Let me tell you another deal breaker. Uh, but CVS. CVS is a deal breaker for my mother. All right? My mother can be right by a Walgreens, and she is willing to drive an extra mile or two or three. Rather than giving her hard-earned money to Walgreens, she will go to CVS for one reason, one deal breaker. Anybody care to guess? Coupons found in the receipts, <laughs> right? I, that's the deal breaker for her. She's like, oh, man, like, I, I want the coupon from CVS. So she sees Walgreens, nah. Even if I got to drive further, I will go to CVS because that is my deal breaker. Now, those are examples of positive deal breakers. Let me give you an example of a negative deal breaker in my life. Cream cheese. (laughs) Cream cheese is a negative deal breaker in my life. Look, pastors get invited to eat sometimes and to go places, and they have to be polite, and they have to eat whatever they're given. I tell people when I'm invited to places, hey, thank you for inviting us. If it has cream cheese, I ain't touching it just so you don't get offended later. Like, I do not do cream cheese. And if I see a dish that I believe could remotely have cream cheese, my skepticism begins to arise, and I begin to ask questions. First, I go to the person that made it and said, hey, uh, this looks real good. Uh, Does it have cream cheese? And then they'll tell me yes or no. You think I believe them? It's too big of a deal breaker. I ain't just going to take their word for it. They might be lying. They might want me to try it. Maybe they heard I didn't like cream cheese and they want to be the one that changes me. Good luck. Like, I'm going to ask. So first I start with a question, but the skepticism is too strong. So then I grab the dish when nobody's watching and I give it up. I give it a quick sneeze. And this microphone smells like saliva. I give it a, I give it a quick little a quick little sneeze to find out if it, if it has cream cheese or not. But that's not even enough. My skepticism is too big. The deal breaker is too important. I find a reliable source. <laughs> and I go to my wife and I pinch the dish. Taste this. Does it have cream cheese? She's already learned. Don't lie to me. That's a sin. So she so she tells me the truth. But my skepticism arises because the cream cheese is such a big deal for me that I'm not just going to let it slide. So my skepticism arises. And skepticism is nothing more than just a mechanism of defense. A university professor calls this the BS detector. That's what skepticism is. It, is. it is something that arises in us to protect us from being deceived, protect us from being embarrassed, protect us from disappointment. Protect us from fraud. Like as soon as something seems too good to be true, as soon as something seems too important, automatically this skepticism begins to arise because it's too big of a deal for us to just fall for it, right? And so the skepticism begins to defend. For years, the church has villainized the skeptic, sees it as a form of weakness, a form of malice, a form of immaturity, and it's not allowed You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to look at the preacher and tell him about the thing you heard on YouTube because you would be seen as automatically dumb. You would be shamed. And how good is it to belong to a church like home church that says that is not godly? 
We will not reject or shame or, or, or criticize the person for the skepticism that arises in them because what the Bible teaches in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, it says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for their hope. It's okay to have reasons of hope that is in you. Yet, look at this, do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience so that we, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice how the Bible treats the skepticism. It treats it with gentleness. It treats it with respect. It's scary. It's a red flag. Whenever somebody comes and automatically wants to shun you for your skepticism, blame you for the mechanism of defense that's trying to protect you from being deceived or disappointment or disappointed. The Bible treats skepticism with love. Empty of compromise, full of compassion. We're not going to compromise what we believe. It's not going to compromise what is said, but it will be done with compassion. And I believe that the reason that this is so important to understand is because deep inside of us, every single one of us is skeptic in some way. Some people are sitting here and you are a skeptic of God. You're not too sure if God is real yet. You're not too sure if this is the real deal. And so you are a skeptic of whether or not there is a God, whether or not a God exists. And we welcome you today. And I hope that today I might give you some things to wrestle with. But some other people are sitting here. And you're not a skeptic of God. You already found out about God. You already learned about God. You're a skeptic with God. I got to repeat that one more time. You're a skeptic with God. Pastor, what's the difference? That you know he, is, he exists and he is real, but there are certain things about him, certain things that he has said over you, certain things that he has said over your family and over your kids and over your life that you are not too sure if you want to buy into those yet. Certain things that he asks and commands of you, and you are not too sure if that one's still going to follow through or not. I hope I'm preaching to somebody today because whether some of you are here and you're a skeptic of God, but some of us are here and we're a skeptic with God. We've raised walls. We ask questions, and I'm hoping that today we get to answer some of those questions. And I believe that the reason that God has brought me here today to preach to you guys, give me the honor to preach to you guys, is to try to unleash something powerful in your life. Try to, try to convince you that the dish doesn't have cream cheese. Because it would be so good if you just, if somebody would address the skepticism, you would be able to enjoy something about God that would change your life. You will be able to remove the skepticism and just savor the dish that God has prepared for you, whether it is his existence or whether it is his character. And today I'm hoping that we can tackle both. I'm hoping that we can unleash something powerful and get us to enjoy the dish because it does not have cream cheese. And in order to free you from that burden, in order to free you from the burden of some of those questions, we're going to have to start with the church cuss word. There are certain church cuss words that in the world of the church you don't say. And there is a, a particular church cuss word that we're going to have to start today's sermon with. That we're going to have to address in order to begin unpacking this skepticism. And that word is evidence. Evidence has become a church cuss word. It is not something we talk about. It is not something we need. We are strong, mature, believing Christians, and evidence is of the devil. We don't need it. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to challenge you, that evidence is not the enemy of your faith. Evidence was never be meant to be the enemy of your faith. And the reason that you have trouble even hearing that is because culture has made you buy into the atheistic lie that evidence equals sight. But evidence does not equal sight. The Bible encourages faith without sight. That is true. But it never condemns faith with evidence. And I want to challenge you. I want to take you deep. And I know this part might get a little boring for some people. But I just need you to open your eyes today. That the Bible encourages faith without sight. 
but never condemns faith with evidence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says the things that we cannot see, that is good. The hope of things that you cannot see, that is good. Pastor Kenny was speaking last week, and he put the two chairs, right? And he said that some things we don't see yet, we don't understand yet, but we still have to have faith for it. That is good. You don't see it yet. John chapter 20, verse 24, blessed are those that believed without seeing, right? It encourages that faith without the necessity of sight. But it never condemns the faith that is grounded on certain evidence because evidence and sight are not the same thing. Let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. How many of you believe that dinosaurs lived? Raise your hand. How many of you believe that dinosaurs lived? All right, all right, the grand majority. All right, Jurassic Park, let's go. Right? Now, keep, keep your hands up. How many of you believe that dinosaurs lived? How many of you have seen a living dinosaur? Your husband doesn't count. No, I can't, I can't. I'm kidding. You have seen, and you say, man, I've seen a living dinosaur. Like you saw a T-Rex. Well, no. We've seen recreations of it. We have seen the bones of it. We have gotten information, and we have gotten evidence, but that evidence has not come in the form of sight. This is the definition of evidence in the dictionary. The available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. Notice how evidence can still be a belief. Notice how evidence comes from the form of information and not necessarily from sight. There can be something, church, that you cannot see and you have faith for it, but you also have evidence and grounds for that faith, for that thing that you haven't seen. There is no contradiction there. I cannot see something yet. I haven't seen it. I have faith for it. And I have evidence and grounds and information that leads me to hold on to this faith for the thing that I have not seen. No contradiction there. Paycheck. Have you seen next month paycheck? Have you seen it? No. But I, I haven't seen it, but I have faith that it's going to come. Why? Because there's evidence of the hours that I logged. And there's evidence that I will sue them if they don't. Right? <laughs> like, like you, there, is, there is evidence. It's called grounds for confidence. And here's the big, most important part. God likes to give us that evidence. He wants to give us that evidence. He does give us that evidence. And if we fall into the trap just to beat our Christian chest, we're just playing to the drum of the atheist that wants to make our faith look silly. But it's not silly. It's true. That's why we believe it. And we cannot dance to the beat of that drum. That's not what God wants us to do. Even in the biblical bedtime stories, for little kids, God shows us this. This, this is a story that I've been reading to my kid my two-year-old, every single night. He loves it. I want to read it to you today. I want to read half of it to you today. Let's go and let's become kids again and let's read this. This is a story called The God Contest, okay? And it is a real Bible story found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Rather than reading the whole chapter, I figured, why don't we just take a break today, right? <laughs> yeah, why don't we do it differently in home church? Here, here's, 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 here's the story. There are all sorts of contests. Spelling contest, dog, D-O-G. I'm doing it the way I do it for my kid, okay? D-O-G. Singing contest. Sewing contest. <laughs> Sporting contest. But this book isn't about any of those contests. It's about the God contest, a challenge to find out who the real God was. Ahab and Jezebel were kings and queen of Israel. They thought Baal was the real God, and they would sing to him. Baal, Baal, make the food grow. Baal, Baal, make babies grow. Baal, Baal, super powerful. Baal, Baal. And my kid goes, Baal, Baal. <laughs> and then there was Elijah, who was just an ordinary guy, and he told the people of Israel that Yahweh was the real God. And he was one of Yahweh's messenger. And Elijah would say to everybody, Yahweh, Yahweh, holy is your name. 
I don't want to take it in vain. There was a debate in the people. Some were saying it was Yahweh. Some were saying it was Baal. They were fighting. They were, they were bickering about it. And then Elijah said, rather than us continuing on this debate, why don't we go up to Mount Carmel? And up there, we will create a challenge. I will bring a bull. You guys will bring a bull. We will set it in the altar. And whoever, whatever God brings fire down from heaven first, that one will be the real God. And the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal said, okay, let's do it. Elijah explained the rules. They chopped up the bull. They put it in the altar. And after they put it in the altar, they began. And the people from Baal began. Baal, Baal, fire, fire. No fire. Baal, Baal, fire, fire. No fire, no fuego. So they started singing louder. Baal, Baal, fire, fire. Baal, Baal, fire, fire, fire. No fire, no fuego. Baal, Baal, fire, 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 please. Fire, 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 please. Fire, 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 please. No fuego, no fire. So Elijah started making fun of them. It was like, what's the matter? Your God don't know how to light up a flame, huh? Your God don't know how to work a flint. It wasn't matter. He was losing survivor. <laughs> what's the matter with your God? What's happening? Huh? Come on, sing louder, sing louder. And people were mad. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Well, this guy, it's my turn. Says, come put some water in the altar. Come on, put a little bit more. You're like, come on, drench it, drench it. Put even more water in there. I want to make sure that y'all don't think this is a trick. No way a little flame will light this up with all this water. My turn. And then Elijah spoke to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, please make it clear today that you are God. Please answer me, Yahweh, so that all these people will know that you are the only real God and that you want them to follow you and love you. And all of a sudden, And the prophets of Baal were like, oh, my God. And God was like, yeah. <laughs> Notice how Elijah's answer to the people and to the skeptics wasn't like, ah, oh, whatever. Y'all are going to hell. I don't need no proof that my God is real. Uh, you don't know nothing. It's by faith, blind faith. No, he said, I know my God is realer than yours, and I can prove it. And when I prove it, it'll be good for all of us. And that's not the first time that it happens in the Bible. De Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, God tells the people to fact check the prophets to see whether or not they're real prophets. Because if they were real prophets, they would have real visions that actually come to pass. They'd be some kind of crumbs of evidence. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21, debate between the false gods. And he starts saying, what has the false god done? Look at everything that I have done. I got proof. You do not. Acts chapter 18, verse 27, there are reasons for Jesus to be real. John chapter 5, verse 35, the works bear witness. It's not enough. Jesus himself would say, it's not enough if I claim to be the son of man and the son of God. My fruits, my works is what you got to back up my claim. There is evidence. Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, the story of the paralytic. A guy can't make it to the house. The house was too full. Jesus was teaching. They come up to the roof. They break a roof. Bring the man down right in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and tells him. What does he tell him? What does he tell him, church? Your sins are forgiven. And so the paralytic man, I'm assuming he's like, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Why? Because he wanted a miracle. But he, Jesus just forgave his sins. Why did he do that, pastor? Because the Pharisees were there. And so the Pharisees were like, who is this guy thinking that he can forgive sins? And blah, 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 blah. And Jesus knew. Uh, I know where they're coming from. So Jesus turns around and says, I know, I know. Which one's easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say that you should be healed? So that you guys would have assurance, evidence, proof, backup. That I can 
forgive his sins because I am the son of God. Get up. Man gets up, walks away. They didn't bother Jesus to give them something to back up his claim. They didn't bother him. He can do it. It's all good. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. And for how shall we escape if we ignore so great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testifies to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God is telling us, the skeptics, I have left crumbs of evidence, all types of evidence to support your faith. And this doesn't make you, listen, let me free you from this church, because I know I'm probably challenging a lot of the things that you grew up with. And I don't mean to be insensitive. I know I'm passionate and I'm crazy. And I don't, I'm not trying to be insensitive. Because whenever I was preparing for this, I was challenged myself. I'm not trying to be insensitive to, the, to what you've grown up thinking. Because you grew up thinking it completely innocent, and you grew up thinking that it was good, and it's okay. God knows, and that's not being put on you. But I'm here for you to know, church, that the evidence that God leaves for us all through the Bible and all through history and all through science and all through the, 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 the life of this world and this universe, when you find it and discover it and analyze it, it does not make your faith weaker. Is incoherent to believe that. Did I believe in my God with all my might and all my strength? And then some piece of information comes that backs up that faith. And then all of a sudden, I'm no longer a good Christian. What? Now I'm a stronger Christian. How do you know that? How do you know that, Pastor? I'm skipping a little bit ahead. But I know that because the, the most hardcore Christians in the history of mankind, the ones that got persecuted, the ones that got beaten down, the ones that got burned, had evidence of Jesus' existence. It did not water them down. It empowered them up enough to stick to it. They had eyewitnesses. They had accounts. They had John. They had Paul. They had Peter. So they were able to stand even stronger in their faith. And so one of the biggest deal breakers is the deity in the deity of Christ and his resurrection. This is a decisive topic. And we, and, 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 and we like to start with creationist arguments. Here's for the skeptics of God. I know we like to start with creationist arguments. Because they are so good and they're so fun. But rather than going to creationist arguments today, although we could make them, there are many arguments, logical arguments, creationist arguments. For everybody that's a skeptic here and for everybody that is not a skeptic of God, it's still good for you to know this stuff so you can defend your faith because of what First Peter says, to be ready to give arguments, reasonable arguments, for the hope that you have inside of you. There are reasonable arguments to believe the faith that we have. We don't have to pound our chest. There are things out there like the moral law argument. That if there is no God, if there is no judge, if there is no creator of good and evil, how can we possibly know what is good and what is evil? Why wouldn't everything be permissible? How do we know that torturing innocent child is bad? What the, why is there a universe that sort of believes that? And those that didn't believe that were outcasted by the rest of the world. Because you're like, oh, pastor, there was cultures that did this and this and that. Yes, there were culture, and we all see them a little freakish. Because there is a moral law argument, there is a designer argument that the world is so fine-tuned that if one little thing of this world was different, it could not possibly exist. Literally, if it was just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit uh, further from the sun, this couldn't exist. If the water wasn't specifically balanced, it couldn't exist. There are so many fine-tuned arguments about gravity. If gravity was just a little bit stronger or a little weaker, it could not exist. It's so fine-tuned that it is a greater impossibility that it was just made out of an accident than it is out of a creator, an intelligent designer. We don't look at a painting and say, oh, man, must have rained paintings last week. We're not walking. I heard a pastor say something, and I thought it was, it was so good. He says he takes his kids on a hike, and every now and then in the hikes, there will be some stairs. And in the stairs, there will be like the, the, the handrail. And all of a sudden, he would stop and he would tell his kids, kids, look, thousands of years ago, a tree fell. 
And all of a sudden, the rain kind of molded into these steps that have now solidified. And this metal railing right here is a mixture of the weather. And then his four-year-old kid tells him, Dad, someone made that. Right? Because it's too smart. It's too specific for me to just claim it on pure accident. When we see something designed, we think designer. And the world is so perfectly designed, there must be a designer. We can look at the cosmological argument that whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. This is scientific. Science agrees that the universe had a beginning. We also agreed a long time ago. When? In Genesis 1-1. Did we not? In the? There was a beginning. And for the world to have even existed, for time, space, and matter to have even existed and gotten created, it requires somebody that is outside of time, space, and matter. It requires a causer. And that causer can't be found in the cause. Makes no sense. It has to be found outside of it. We could, we could go through all those arguments. And those are fun. But, but I'd, rather, I'd rather stop and for the next few minutes, I'd rather stop and I'd rather put our focus on the resurrection. Because to me, the question of who is Jesus is the best starting point for skeptics of God. And for us skeptics with God, it tells us a lot of how we should act and how we should live. You see, Jesus claimed to be the son of God. This man predicted his death and predicted his resurrection. If he did resurrect, a movement that started with 12 men, fishermen, not fancy, not rich, just 12 fishermen, and a guy whose dad was a carpenter of one of the smallest towns, is now 2.4 billion followers, more than 2,000 years later, just, just let's look at it from a skeptic's point of view, more than 2,000 years later, started with 12, 2.4 billion because of the teachings of this one man who claimed to be God. Now, these followers were going to get killed for believing this. Why would they be willing to get killed for a lie? Why so many? They must have known that it was true, true, who this man said he was. And why could they have known that? Because they thought he resurrected. And how can we know whether or not he resurrected? What if God left historical crumbs that serves as evidence that he resurrected? What if his resurrection could be historically proven with the same level of scrutiny and the same level of standards that history proves any other thing. Same level of standards. What, what if we could possibly know? What if we can compile a few facts? That's what I want to do in the last few minutes. What if we can compile a few facts and then think of what is the most logical answer to these few facts? And what if those facts agreed upon inside and outside of the Bible lead to the faith that you and I now hold. Wouldn't that make our faith stronger? Wouldn't that make our faith so much more solid? So what I want to do is I want to give you three historical facts that, we, that the world generally agrees with in its majority and what the best conclusion for those three facts would be. These three facts are not only confirmed by the journals of the gospel, these three facts are also confirmed by scholars, non-Christian scholars like, jo like Josephus a man who was a scholar within the Jewish culture that does not see Jesus the way that we see Jesus. By Tacitus, a Roman guy who was recording most of Roman, he's one of the most prominent Roman scholars, confirms some of these facts that we're going to be talking about. So inside and outside the Bible, these three facts can be agreed on. We're not just being religious here. We're not just being churchy here. Let's look at these three facts real quick. And let's ask ourselves, for the skeptics of God, what could be the conclusion? And let's ask ourselves, for the skeptics with God, what does that fact tell us about what we're living through right now? Here we go. As quick as I can because I'm running out of time. Number one. Number one fact, if you're writing it down, Jesus really did live and he really did die. Simple. That's a fact. Historical fact. 
No Christianese involved there, right? No pounding of the chest, no religious, no weirdo, no mysticism. Jesus did exist. He did die. He was a real character in the history of man the way that Mary Teresa is. A real character the way that Nero or the Emperor Caesar, Jesus was somebody, like a real thing that's not just found in the Bible. And he did live and he did die. There was an execution that did took place, asked for by the Jewish commanded by the Romans. Inside and outside the Bible, that's a thing. He was indeed crucified. And we have to accept this because later this will be used by some skeptics to say that he faked his own death so that he really couldn't resurrect. No, he did die. It is a thing and it is confirmed inside and outside the Bible. What can we, that's for the skeptics of God. He did live and he did die. For the skeptics with God. Those of us that already know, yeah, he did live and he did die. What does it say to us about our God? Quick, because I don't have time. Our God doesn't feel the need to take shortcuts. Our God doesn't feel the need to skip the line. But sometimes all we ask him is to give us a shortcut. It's like, I don't got to give you a shortcut. You're going to go through this and you're going to come to the other side better than you were yesterday. Why is God letting me go through this? Skeptic with God. Because he's not going to take you on any shortcuts. He's going to make you better. And your blessing of tomorrow means your process of today. Number two, number two, second fact. The tomb really was empty. How can we know that? How can you possibly know that the tomb was empty? A few reasons. Number one, the location of the tomb was the starting point of Christianity's uprising. The historical records indicate that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the group that orchestrated Jesus' execution. It makes no sense to think that Christians would fabricate this with Joseph when Joseph wasn't on our side. There were guards put in front of the tomb that were not Christian guards. They were Roman guards who were startled and were freaking out. You can find this within the Gospels and outside of the Gospels. Jesus was known to the Jewish authorities. He was known in Jerusalem. How could the movement pick up in Jerusalem? Ask yourself this question. How could Christianity begin in Jerusalem if the place where Jesus died was Jerusalem and the tomb where Jesus died was public knowledge? I'm not following, Pastor. Wouldn't have been, if he really didn't resurrect and everybody knew where the tomb was and Christianity starting in the same city where the tomb was, wouldn't it have been easy for a Christian to say, Jesus is real! And the enemies go like, no, he's dead. He's dead. To just in immediately stop the movement. He's dead. Why couldn't they stop the movement in this? It's not like Jesus lived in Jerusalem and the movement started in Puerto Rico. No. Yeah, before the internet and before TikTok and Wi-Fi and all that stuff. No, we would have never been able to stop the movement. No, the movement start, started where he was buried. This doesn't make any sense unless the tomb was really empty. Skeptics of God, the tomb was really empty. The location of the tomb and the beginning of the uprising of Christianity gives us reasons to believe that. Skeptics with God. What does that teach us today? That it couldn't get contained even though it would have been convenient for the rulers of that time. Listen, skeptics with God. It couldn't get, the movement couldn't get contained even though the rulers of that time wished they could have contained it. What God has placed inside of you that cannot be contained even if the rulers and powers of this life want to. The calling that God said, the promise that God gave over your life that you know he gave you and he confirmed it through scripture and he confirmed it through the spirit of God and he confirmed it through other leaders cannot be contained. Even if they wish they can't contain it. They will not be able to contain it because that's how our God works. Second reason why I know the tomb was empty because the consistent account of the finding of the empty tomb comes from women. How is this proof? Thank you. <laughs> How is this proof, Pastor, that the tomb was empty? Because if it was made up, given the patriarchal nature of the first century Israel, a Jewish in Jewish society, a woman's testimony was worth far less than a man's. So if you were making this up, if you were making this little story for kids, in an attempt to persuade others that Jesus had been resurrected, you would never have used a woman as the primary witness. 
Because it's going to get harder discredited unless the only reason you would stick to that point is because it's true. It really happened. For the skeptics of God, the fact that women said it makes it real. There you go, husbands. Let's pray. <laughs> what can we learn about that today? Skeptics with God. What does that teach us that, that, that women were the consistent in God? It teaches us that God uses the unlikeliest. God uses the unlikeliest to do the greatest of things. Stop trying to stop tying your, up your calling to your talent or to your skills or to your experiences because God doesn't need any of those to do something, to do what he wants to do with you. That's not what moves God. God didn't pick you because of your degree. He picked you before you had a degree. And the degree just backs it up. So stop thinking like, well, it can't be me because of blah, 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 blah. Well, blah, 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 doesn't care. God doesn't care about blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Third reason why I know the tomb was empty. Because there's a strong enemy attestation. At one point, the Pharisees started saying that the disciples stole the body. At one point, the Pharisees started saying that the disciples stole the body. Why does this matter? Because they thought they could stop it. In the process... They managed to concede that it was indeed empty. They said, they, they, they thought that with them coming up with the lie that the disciples stole the body, they are indeed confirming that there is no body. Does that make sense? The Pharisees of that time, the, the enemies of this movement are saying, Oh, somebody stole the body. Oh, hold up, hold up. Hey, hey, the guy in the back. Hey, 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 excuse me, excuse me. What? So there's no body? Right? Messed up. The enemy attestation was too strong. What can we learn about that today? Skeptics of God, the empty, the tomb was empty because everybody knew the location and they still couldn't stop the movement because consistently women were the one that said it and if it was fabricated, they wouldn't have used women. And because... There was strong enemy attestation that proved that there was indeed no body there. What does it say to the skeptics with God? What can we learn about this point of evidence? That the attack that the enemy is throwing over your life is simply validating the calling that God has over your life. The fact that the enemy won't take off the glove of your son, off of your son, your son's been struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling for years. And you're like, why won't the enemy let my son be? Because your son has a calling from God. The fact that your marriage keeps struggling and struggling and it seems like they never get a break. Because the enemy knows that your marriage has purpose. And the attack that you're feeling validates that purpose. So why don't you translate in Espanol, in Espanol, why don't you translate the attack of the enemy and say what it's truly saying. You scared. You scared of what I could do if I step up in the church. You scared of what I could do if I open up that business. You scared of what I could do that's why you're putting so much opposition. Ah, uh, you just proved to me that I ain't crazy and that this is needed. Last but not least, I've given you two points why Jesus did resurrect. Number one, I told you that Jesus did die. And number two, I told you that the tomb was empty. Number three, and last one, there were so many eyewitnesses, so many eyewitnesses. So many people saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes and so many of them say, I saw the resurrected Jesus with my own eyes. Inside and outside the Bible, so many people claiming that they actually saw him. And this is historically undisputed by the majority of people. They, it is historically proven that some people actually thought they saw Jesus after he died. I know, I know, the skeptic automatically begins to ask more questions because he still thinks there's cream cheese in the dish. So the skeptic says, oh, but just because they say they saw him, it doesn't mean they saw him. Okay, but not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but hundreds? Oh yeah, it could have been hundreds. How can hundreds have claimed to seen them, some of them together, or maybe hallucinations? We've never heard of mass hallucinations. Hallucinations happen to one person, and that's why it's a hallucination. 
If we all see the same hallucination, then it couldn't have been a hallucination. Even if we're in drugs, we can't all see the same thing. <laughs> Some of you laugh too hard at that. <laughs> That's true, Pastor. <laughs> we can't. Oh, it was mass hysteria. Mass hysteria? Then how can you explain that years later, they are being tortured, their kids are being tortured to deny the mass hysteria, and they won't deny it? Why wouldn't you just deny something when you're being tortured if you know you made it up? If I make up a lie, I'm just going to do this on the spot. I don't even have my, if I make up a lie, that somehow I made billions of dollars last year and I put it on Facebook and then next week the IRS starts knocking on my door and says, hey, did you make billions of dollars? And it's a lie. I'm telling you, I'm going to tell that agent, I was just kidding. But if the agent continues to press and say, no, tell me, tell me. If it ain't true, I got nothing to fear. Oh, leave me alone. I was kidding. But if it is true, I have to face that agent and I have to say, and then I have to face the multiple, multiple fees, right? I have to face the multiple threats and jail and all this stuff. I have to face it because it's true. If it wasn't true, why would these early witnesses stick to it? Years of persecution, but they held true. Skeptics of God, so many eyewitnesses and they held true. Why would they held true? Maybe because it's true. Skeptics with God. You've seen it, you've felt it, you've touched it, you've heard it. And the world thinks you're crazy. But if it's true, it's true. I hope somebody knows what I'm talking about. Because you heard the dream, you felt the dream, you saw the dream, you read on scripture that your healing was coming, you read it, and then people are telling you that you're crazy and doctrines are popping up everywhere that no, that that's not going to happen. You've seen it. You're sitting here and you're like, they've been calling me crazy forever, but man, am I positive that I heard from God all those years ago when he spoke into my life, and even though it has not come to pass, I will hold to it no matter the persecution. I have seen it. And I'm here to tell you, skeptics with God, that when God shows us something, you stick to it. No matter what's going on around you, you stick to it. You got your own evidence. Now you don't got to prove it to nobody else. You got your own evidence. And die with it. Oh, pastor, how crude. You're going to get to that verse at some point in Hebrews 11, that most of these people had a promise and they died. And it, but it, and it never happened, but they held on to it. Hold on to it. Here's my conclusion. Here's my end. Let me wrap up the whole sermon for you. Let me wrap up the whole sermon for you. I know, I know, I know that God would be a deal breaker in your life. It would change the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you think, the things you hope for, the priorities, the music you listen to, the things you watch. God is such a deal breaker. He would make you go further. He would make you walk the 10 extra miles to not give Walgreens your money. God is such a deal breaker. So much so. You're looking at the dish. And you're looking at the church. And you're looking at Pastor Kenny. And you're looking at me. And you're like, that looks like it's got cream cheese. Mm. That looks like it's got cream cheese in it. I don't know about that God. I don't know about the whole Jesus thing. That he resurrected and he saves me from my sins. I don't know. I don't know about that. It's like, like cream cheese. I don't know. I don't know about of God. And so you come to church and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and you're looking for reliable sources. Hey, can anybody fact check? whether or not this thing has cream cheese. Because if it has cream cheese, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with God. If it's all fake, I want nothing to do with that. Craziness. I don't know about that God. 
And I hope that today, by looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by looking at the fact that he lived and he died, by looking at the fact that the tomb was actually empty, and by looking at the fact that there were early witnesses, that you can combine those three facts and say, maybe. I'm not asking you to say yes. I'm not asking you to leave here and be, yeah, Christian for life. No, no, no. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to look at the dish and say, hmm, maybe. And then what, pastor? And just come again next Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that and hang on around those, these crazy Denver maiden people. <laughs> hang out around this crazy Pastor Kenny with crazy visions, walking around maiden every single day. Hang, just, just hang out around that kind of faith. And eventually, and it will change your life forever. Because I don't know if anybody can back this up, but it is the best dish in the world. It will change you forever. Nothing will be the same. And for those of you skeptics with God, I don't know if, if God really commanded that. I don't know if he's really asking me to change that music. I don't know if he's really, I don't know. It's a big deal breaker. I don't know if that dream is real. I don't know if I made it all up in my mind. I don't know if my son's going to be healed. I don't know. I don't know if my marriage is going to get restored. I have no idea. I have no idea if God truly, truly can change me and set me free from my addiction of the last 15 years in pornography. I don't know. It looks like he's got cream cheese. I've tried too many times. I've talked to too many pastors. I've read too many verses. I've came to too many churches and I've heard too many sermons. And it's never made a difference. I don't know if this dream is truly from God. I don't know if I should truly be singing and sacrificing. I don't know. I should keep serving every single Sunday. I, I'm, I don't know. Looks like he's got cream cheese. <laughs> and I hope that today I've given you enough evidence, pastor, enough evidence of what? <laughs> enough evidence that God does not take shortcuts enough evidence that it cannot get contained even if it's convenient enough evidence that at one point the enemy the attacks of the enemy are validating your point enough evidence that you've seen it and you felt it and no persecution or amount of time is enough to keep you from enjoying the promise of God over your life hope for the skeptic the grave is empty our God lives so my dream does too my calling does too my chances live thanks for listening to today's episode if there's anything that we can do to serve you or come alongside of you in your journey please reach out you can reach us at hello at myhomechurch.cc